early for a ordination service that will be happening between the first and second service. How many are excited about ordination? Amen. So open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 12, verse 37. How many are thankful for a good Thanksgiving? Amen. Anybody have a good Thanksgiving? If you weren't thankful for a good Thanksgiving, are you thankful for Jesus letting you be alive to have a bad Thanksgiving? <laughs> Some of you are like, man, I didn't have a good Thanksgiving. Well, like I said, are you happy to be alive? Are you thankful to be alive to experience a bad Thanksgiving and now use it for God's good? Amen. Go with me to John chapter 12, verse 37. Not only do I want to encourage you today to believe in Jesus, I want to encourage you out of this sermon today to believe in Jesus even if others don't. I want to encourage you to spread the message of Jesus even if others don't understand it. Because what you're about ready to see right here in John chapter 12, the ending part of John here, is that Jesus is being disowned by his own people. And now the Father is going to hand those disbelievers over to a reprobate, hard heart, so that they now cannot be saved. Oftentimes we hear in the church that God is the God of second and third chances, and that's true. But I think we as pastors, in the hopes of encouraging people to come to Jesus, we forget to remind them that Jesus can say, enough is enough, I'm done with you, get out. Sometimes we think of Jesus always saying, come on over, come on over. Mikasa, sukasa, come on, come on. No, sometimes Jesus is like, I'm done with you. Get out. You're done. I don't know you. And we get this in our mind as, oh, that would, be, that would not be Jesus. That, if he ever were to do that, that would be a mean Jesus. I can't serve a Jesus like that. Well, first of all, if you make a decision not to serve a Jesus like that, that doesn't change Jesus. Well, my God would never do, you know, such and such a thing. Right, your God would never do that. Your God doesn't exist. My God does. Get over it. Get over it. I mean, we, we come with our American privilege and let me talk to the manager, Karen attitude when we come to the Bible. That doesn't change anything. Imagine you being in Sodom and Gomorrah and you're not a homosexual. You're not a rapist. And that's what they were. They were homosexuals and rapists. Not every homosexual is a rapist. I'm not saying that. But in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were homosexual and they were rapists. So they went full-blown into a lifestyle of sin. Now imagine you're living there and you're not a homosexual. You're not a rapist. And the first hellfire starts coming down. The, the sulfur comes down. I mean, you could shake your fist at God and go, how dare you? This is my house. I worked hard for this house. Or you can get out. Because if you stay shaking your fist at God, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything. And even when we read that story and we think about Lot and his family leaving, the angel was very clear, don't look back. God's handling business. I don't want you to see this. It's his business, and it's not your business. And the Bible says she looked back and turned to salt. Right there. Now, it's funny. When people used to make fun of this in the Bible, now they pay a billion dollars to go watch it and call it Marvel when everybody disappeared. You remember that? You see, we look at the Bible, and they go, oh, that's it. That's it. Now we pay billions of dollars for it because we know that technology or power or magic or somehow that could happen. You know, but then we said, oh, that's the Bible. That's silly. You're saying the God who created the universe and made man out of dust can't take man and put him right back to dust, to salt right in front of you? Of course God can do that. And so a lot of our fantasies, a lot of our make-believe is based on what we know down deep inside is possible if God wanted to do things. Now here's the good news. I don't say that so that you walk out if you're going, man, I feel like I'm going to hell now. No, I don't want you to walk out if you're feeling that. I want you to fear God. I want you to honor God. I want you to take God serious. But I want you to walk out of here believing in God. But I just have to be honest with you. When you get to this part of the story and you hear these scriptures, you cannot walk out of here thinking you're going to have an argument with Jesus and how he deals with people. It's not going to work. You can, and I, and I have before. I mean, of course, we preach, on the gospel, uh, we preach the gospel on the streets. You can debate to whether or not Jesus is God. You, you, could, you could say, well, I'm not sure if he's God. But to debate on what kind of God he is would, you know, would only come from the Scripture. 
That's why when people say to me, they go, well, I, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in the Bible. I'm like, how do you even know Jesus? Well, I met him in a dream. But how do you know that's not Jesus from down the road selling in Lotes? I mean, how do you know the difference between the real Jesus? I mean, if you don't have a book that describes him for people that have met him before you, just somebody showing up saying, I'm Jesus, especially in the book when it says that angels can appear as light and as good and deceive people, how would you ever know what Jesus is unless you have a way to test what that spirit is you met? See, the Bible says when you meet a spirit, that says, I'm either here from Jesus or I'm Jesus, you need to ask them, is Jesus Lord and God of all? And if that spirit can't confess that, then you know there's a problem. That spirit doesn't want to admit who the real Jesus is. And if that spirit doesn't turn you towards the Father to worship and honor him as he has taught through the Jewish prophets, that spirit's a deceiving spirit. And the Bible says they're out there, okay? So if somebody could argue about Jesus, they could say, well, I'm not sure. Maybe I want to follow another religion. I want to follow something from Hinduism, you know, Hare Krishna, you know, things like this, these kind of people. Okay, well, I mean, you get your book, you get your man, we get our book, we get our man, we can see who's the real God man then, right? Book in the man, book in the man, let's go. Ding, 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 round one, let's go. Okay, first of all, did your man ever live? Did your person that you're believing in ever even live? <laughs> Ours is documented in history. Most of them are just myths, right? And then the second thing, now where's your man right now? <laughs> where's your man right now? Or you go to that grave and you celebrate, you light candles there. Ours ascended to heaven after resurrecting on the third day. That's ours, okay? That's ours. That's ours right there. So I mean, game, set, match. It's over. And I know sometimes it doesn't seem to be that easy, but trust me, from Oxford all the way to, to your hood, that's the way it can be dealt with in Jesus' name. Christians have been representing Christ in the face of all kinds of opposition. We've never run from it. True Christians are always open to the task of showing and giving evidence to what we believe. So if you're going to believe in Jesus, and I believe that most of you here want to, you've got to take him at his word. And so what we're seeing now is the buildup of the rejection of Jesus. Because for some reason, we get it in our minds that if today everybody could see Jesus, witness a miracle of Jesus, maybe even like Lazarus being raised from the dead, then everybody would believe in Jesus. That's not the story of the Bible. As we've talked about here before, how ridiculous it got they not only wanted to kill Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead, who else did they want to kill? Lazarus himself. Now, does that surprise you that people would be that wicked? No, because you look around and people are that wicked now. And this is what I want you to understand. When the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar, that's as true as it was then as it is now. I remember watching the show, How to Catch a Predator. Anybody ever watch that show? I became obsessed with it. Hello, I'm Chris Hansen. No, take a seat. Take a seat. You can't go anywhere. Let me set it up for you, okay? So Chris, Chris Hansen from Dateline would work with an organization that would go undercover to find pedophiles, you know? And, and they would go and pose as children online to get these pedophiles to proposition them for naughty things. And then they would set up a house to trap them, a real trap house. Are you listening? To trap them in that house. They would have the police there, but before they arrested them, they wanted Chris Hansen to come out and entertain us a little bit. And it was entertainment. It was, how many were, come on, how many were entertained by it? I learned a lot about humanity watching this show. Because when Chris Hansen would come out, you would see how much people will lie. I learned when the Bible says, let God be true in every man a liar, that there's a lot of liars in this world. Sometimes they would be elementary school teachers or doctors or lawyers. Even one used to ride the train downtown with Chris Hansen. I don't know if anybody saw that one. Used to be a businessman on the train with him. He recognized him when he came in. He's like, hey, guys, he's like talking to the crew. Once I come out, this dude's going to know everything about what I'm doing, where I, what I'm doing here and where I'm from because he knows me and he knows the show that I do. And what would they say if you ever watched this show when they would come out and Chris Hansen would say, what are you doing here? They would lie through their teeth. Oh, I'm here to give sex education classes to the child. 
Oh, I'm here to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, I'm here to help the child. You know, I was testing too, just like how you guys were testing me. I was testing the child. And now that I'm here, I've come to tell the child, don't trust people. See how dangerous this could be? Now think about this. These people didn't have but what? Ten seconds to concoct a lie and think about how complex it got. How complex and the stories that they would fabricate. Within seconds, the brain lying. This is what I feel like it's going to be on Judgment Day. With those that we've preached to. And they say, oh, I've never experienced God. And God's going to say, you're a liar. Look at all the texts. Look at all the emails. Look at all the times I spoke to you at night. Look at all these evidence I gave you. You know I was speaking to you. You lied to that preacher when you said I didn't speak to you. And then, you know, the same thing about their sin. Oh, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, you know, I might lust a little bit or I might do this a little. And, and, the, and the heaven and angels are going to say, you are lying. Look at all the times you did this. Look at all the times you did. Look at all the murderous, angry thoughts you thought towards people. And so, friends, we're not dealing with, we're not dealing with a humanity that has a soft heart towards God. We're not dealing with a humanity that's going to just bow down and worship the first God that, or the first person claiming to be God doing miracles. When God gave us the gift of free will, it became like a lockbox to our heart. And we decide that combination and how somebody's going to get in. For some of us, we were born and raised Christian. And so the lockbox of our heart was an easy password. Jesus came in, you know... Once we heard that, that Jesus loved us, had a plan for our lives, we, just, we gave him the combination and we let him come into our hearts. Others have one of those crazy combinations, like when you get Wi-Fi codes from Comcast, you know, like XZ123, you know, all of these things, caps, this and that, exclamation mark, hashtag. Because some of us, we want God to really prove it to us before we let him in. We, we make it complicated. And granted, it, because, it could be because we, you know, have lived a complicated life. And it's not going to be so easy to get to our heart. But nonetheless, it's our free will to how we let people in and then specifically how we let God in. And at the end of the day, there will be no one in hell who has not chosen to be there because of their rejection to God. Going back to the combination of the heart, Someone could make it so complicated for God to believe, for them to believe, that God says at the end of the day, I won't do that. And they'll go to hell, not because God didn't give them adequate enough information to believe in, but because they didn't get God to serve them as if they were in charge. Does that make sense to anybody? Because the Jewish people are not Satanists. They're not molesting children. They're not selling drugs. They're not menaces to society in that way. But they are complicating the combination to their heart where Jesus gets to the point and says, I'm done. I've given you as much as I can to open up the gate of your heart to come in and change your life. But you have made it. To the point where if I would go beyond this, I would be now your servant and you would be my God. And I know that's hard for us at times to understand because there's something about our nature. Like finally now with VidAngel, a service, an app you can get that will edit Netflix and Amazon and Apple. I can watch some shows right now, okay? I wasn't able to watch certain shows before, and one of them was Stranger Things, okay? I'm just going to tell myself, nobody spoil it for me, okay? I tried to watch it one time, too much cursing from the kids, and I'm like, I'm not watching this. I'm done with this. So this app, VidAngel, allows me to sync these two shows, uh, these two apps together, VidAngel and Netflix, and then I can go through in VidAngel, and I can now mute every one of those nasty words coming through these children's mouth. Can I hear an amen? I'm not advertising for them. I'm just telling you it worked for me, so now I can watch this show. And I'm not going to spoil it for you either, but there's a part in the first season where everybody's coming to their own conclusions, getting closer to the truth, but none of them have all spoken together yet. 
and you're just watching it, and you're just saying, man, talk to each other. Stop keeping secrets. This guy over here, talk to this one over here, this one over here, and just get all on the same page. And there's almost like a part of me that wanted to go into the show and be like, look, you come over here. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Talk to this person right here. Now, y'all tell each other. Now, listen, you go. Now, come over here. You go over here and talk to this person. You know, I wanted to just connect it. Because watching them just be all the way out there, it was just, it was mentally like, like draining me. I was almost not having fun watching the show anymore. It's like, man, there's too much confusion. If they just got together and just put the pieces of the, the puzzle together, they could understand what's going on. And I know that sometimes we're reading the scriptures like this, and we just wish we could enter into the gospel and be like, listen, you need to go talk to Jesus about this. Listen, just come right here, talk to Jesus, talk to Peter. Y'all talk to each other. Read the book of the Isaiah, the prophet, and just put it all together, and you'll get it. But you know what I noticed about those kinds of shows that are true about this in the Scripture? Because they're lying to one another and they're keeping secrets, that's what makes the knowledge disjointed. And because... They wouldn't humble themselves and talk to each other and tell the truth to one another. They couldn't come to the full grasp of what was going on. And it's because in the scripture, as we're about ready to read, that because Jesus is there speaking to them and they have the prophets, but they're not willing to listen and they're not willing to go to the disciples, they're not willing to go to the prophets and piece together what Jesus is saying, they are going to remain in their ignorance. Because they're not being honest with what the process of gathering information is supposed to be like. You're supposed to ask for help. You're supposed to humble yourself. You're supposed to realize you don't know everything. And that's how the Jews are messing it up here. And they are representative of humanity. Representing the reason why our marriages fail. Representing why relationships fail in the church and, and, and why we don't do good at life. It's because we don't humble ourselves, gather together the counsel of advisors, the counsel of wisdom, and then listen to what Jesus is saying. And then at the end of the day, as now as you're about ready to read, we are Jesus' creation, and it is His choice when he says, I'm done. And at this point, for these Jewish leaders, Jesus says, I'm done. You're about ready to read some of the hardest verses in the Bible. Most people just read through them quickly and don't understand them. But they are some of the hardest verses in the Bible because now you're watching when Jesus says, I'm done with parts of his creation. We know in other places he's going to say at the end of his life towards the crucifixion, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's going to be a thief on a cross that can get saved. There's going to be a lot of wonderful stories of redemption. Even Peter, after betrayal, is going to be restored. You're going to learn about that as we get toward the end of his life. But right here, you're now going to see Jesus wash his hands of some people. So I want you to believe in Jesus. Don't be these people. Amen? Even after, starting in verse 37 of chapter 12, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Highlight it, underline it. Put it on your refrigerator, get it sewn into your pillow and put it on your couch. Do it like my wife does and put it on a board and hang it on your wall. Come on, somebody. This is the reason why there's humanity going to hell. They refuse to believe in him. Your friends, if they do not repent and go to heaven, they will go to hell because they refuse to believe in Jesus. There will be no one on judgment day that will be able to say, I didn't have enough reason or evidence to believe in Jesus. There will be no one that can say that excuse. Everyone who suffers on judgment day will be there because they did not give Jesus the combination of their heart. They were not humbly seeking to learn and to listen of him. 
even after all of these signs were done in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This, my friends, needs to be in our hearts when we go out and preach like we did yesterday at the abortion clinic. This needs to be in our hearts when we preach to our coworkers, our family members, as we saw them over the holidays and hopefully again over the time of Christmas. You are not alone. After you have spoken to people, showed them your own testimony as a sign. I always tell people when I'm preaching, you want to see a sign from God? And they're like, yeah, yeah, here's a six-foot-one sign from Fort Wayne, Indiana that should have been dead or in jail but saved and sanctified. Here's your sign from God right now. The very fact that I'm holding a microphone preaching to you, that means God did something for you to see. Amen. And you're a sign. Each one of us is a sign of God's goodness and grace wherever we go. He did all of these signs, and yet they would not believe in him. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's in Isaiah, 31, uh, Isaiah 53. Does that sound familiar to anybody, Isaiah 53? That's the passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus taking our sins on the cross. But it starts off right at the beginning and says, who has believed this message? Just because Jesus is doing a lot of good things, just because Jesus has taught us a lot of wonderful things, doesn't mean that everyone's going to believe in him. Every heart has a combination. And they can make it as complicated as they want. And at some point... If it goes beyond what Jesus is willing to do, they will suffer for their own belief, not because Jesus didn't make effort to save them. Sometimes I talk to atheists, and they say, well, I've done everything, and I still don't believe. Are you saying that God's going to send me to hell for that? Yes, but you haven't done everything. That's the lie in there, because you truly haven't sought him. You truly haven't gone after him. You're asking him to prove himself as if you're the one in charge and he's in the laboratory and you got him under the microscope. Now move and do something. Prove to me something. You should already be thinking to yourself about why you think to yourself. That came from God. You didn't get that from the goose of the zoo. You, you get what I'm saying? I mean, you could be there all day telling the obvious to them. The very fact that you're a self is evidence of God and that you're not just chemicals and motions. The, the very fact that the universe is here and that it's not in an endless regress of eternal uh, big bangs. There had to be a first uncaused cause. You can't keep saying that, oh, it, there's an infinite amount of universes like these superhero movies do. You can always tell whether it's DC or Marvel when they've run out of ideas, they go to a multiverse. I'm done with you now. You've gone to Doctor Strange, you've gone to the multiverse, I'm done with you. Flash in the brown season, whatever, go to the multiverse, I'm done with you. Because the moment there's four of yous and there's this and then there's this, I'm done with you. You've lost all concept of reality. You can't go back infinitely in time. You have to have a beginning. Otherwise, you never would have reached here because you can't cross an infinite. And so when we talk to our friends and family and they say, well, I've tried these things and it hasn't worked... There's a truth to that, that maybe you've tried some things, and those some things haven't worked, but you haven't tried everything, because if you would have did it God's way, it would have worked. And so he says, this is exactly what was Isaiah's prophecy, that there would be a time when Jesus would be looking at his people going, who's really believed this? And that's happening right there in front of them. Now look at verse 39 as we read this scary part of the Bible. For this reason, highlight this please, they could not believe. Does everybody see that? Now it gets to the point where Jesus shuts off the lights, closes down the office, and says, I'm done trying to get into the password of your heart. I'm done. I'm shutting off the lights, closing down the office. Come on, boys, let's go. Now, because they have rejected him, to the point where Jesus would have to be their servant and them have to be God. He now walks away. And watch what it says here. Because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes. Well, I thought the God of this world blinded their eyes. That was Satan. Yeah, that was Satan in deception. But now Jesus in judgment 
Highlight that, please. He, not talking about Satan, talking about God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. And this is where you meet your friendly neighborhood Calvinists and they're like, Booyakasha, we've been telling you about this the whole time. God chooses who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. That's because he dooms them from the womb. It's not their choice anyways. He blinds their heart. They're going to hell. They were made just to go to hell. That's what a true Calvinist will teach you. It's a certain form of Christianity that goes into fatalism to try to explain these scriptures. But that is not what these scriptures are teaching, specifically in Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah in Isaiah 53 at the beginning, who has believed our message. And then the, part, the portion of the eyes being hardened or blind and the hearts being hardened is from Isaiah 6, 9 and onward. And what Isaiah is being told to tell these people is that because of all that they've done, now they're hardened, now they're blind. There's a difference Go to Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. There are some that would say they never had a choice to begin with, and God is just damning them. That would be what is known as Calvinism or as fatalism. They have a fatalistic belief. But is that the message that Isaiah is saying and that the author of the Gospel of John is repeating? It's not. Look at how God speaks to his people in Isaiah 57, 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is what? Contrite and what? Lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, God has always been with those who humble humble themselves. Humble themselves before God. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. In Isaiah 53, it says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Who believes enough to come and humble themselves before that hand of God? Going back now into Isaiah, go to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 and onward. Because Isaiah 9 is smack dab in the middle of what we're talking about. Isaiah 6, 9 is. But before we get there to the blinding of their eyes, to the hardening of their hearts, what is happening here? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8, this is God speaking, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. You gather up all your riches to buy a 15-bedroom mansion and there's only two of you living there. And you act like you don't need God. That's who he's rebuking here. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing. And he starts talking about these judgments coming upon them because they become greedy. Now go to verse 11. There's going to be quite a few woes here. Woe to those who rise up early in the morning to run after drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have their harps and their lyres at their banquets, pipes, timbrels, and wines, but they have no regard for the deeds of God, no respect for the work of his hands. Does everybody see that God is upset with them because of the things that they have done? Now go. I don't have time to read it all, but you can in your own time. Now go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, the passage that is being quoted in our gospel reading. He said, go and tell this people, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah and says, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then he says, how long, verse 11, keep going, until the cities lie ruined And without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Now do you see the context? It's just as I was describing before. They had chance after chance after chance to be humble but they didn't want to be humble. They didn't want to be contrite. The way Isaiah said in that passage, 57, 15, Jesus is always with the humble. He's always with the contrite. He's always with those seeking and trying to understand his will. But he is against those who are willfully sinning continually over and over and over again to the point that when he says, I'm done, 
he walks away because he's done. And it even says that if he wouldn't have been done when he was done, there was a chance that they might even been healed. Scroll up and see it. Look at the end of the passage there of when he says, ever seen and never hearing. Go up, please. You're skipping past it. Stop right there, verse 10. It's the passage that I was reading. Look at it. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. You mean, Jesus, if you didn't walk away from them, they might still have another chance to come back? Yep. You mean, Jesus, if you didn't make their hearts hard at this point? You mean they might see all this judgment and actually want to repent? Yep. But are you going to allow them to? Nope. Think about that. Otherwise, they might be healed. Otherwise, they might want help. He said, no, harden them now. Judge them now because I'm done with them. I'm not giving them another chance that might even lead them now to turn towards me. I want everyone to get that and let that settle in. That's called the fear of the Lord. That's why preachers used to preach across this country, sometimes four to five sermons a day on horseback. That's why today missionaries are laying down their lives for Jesus because we don't know when God says, I've had enough. We don't know when that time is. We who truly love God and preach his word and do evangelism, you don't know when God is saying, I'm done. And some of you might say, well, that's just the Old Testament. That was just because of the Jews. They had been given so much from God, they were held to a higher standard. And that's true in a lot of ways. But that's not just for the Old Testament. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. This is exactly what happens in the end times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says, This is what will happen when God washes his hands of humanity and allows millions, hundreds of millions to die for blood to be as high as a horse's head and run over 144 miles. Why does God allow this river of blood, this slaughter at Armageddon? Because he has given them chance after chance after chance, and then he walks away, and he doesn't just... Allow them another chance as he walks away. He now makes it impossible for them to ever come. And so this is why when I talk to my Calvinist and they start, uh, my Calvinist friend, and they start bringing out all these scriptures, I'm not intimidated by it. Uh, Just like there's Republican and Democrat, there's two sides to this argument. One is called Calvinist, named after John Calvin, the fatalistic belief. One is then, the other one is Arminian named after Jacob Arminius. They were two medieval theologians going one at each other and, uh, you know, their belief systems, and they were around after the Reformation. So I'm an Arminian. But most non-Calvinists, most Arminians, don't know how to respond to when the Calvinist says this because they've been listening to too much Joel Osteen. And they go, what? You mean God actually walks away and now makes it impossible for people to come back? Oh, I don't believe that. And then they show them in the scripture, unless they do get healed. And you're sitting here scratching your head going, how do I reconcile that with the God that just always is there for me? Because the Calvinist swallows the pill of God's judgment pretty good. They're like, I'll take it. I'm not afraid of that verse. And the reason is, is because God never wanted them to begin with. And they'll say limited atonement, that the cross of Jesus Christ was not for the whole world as individuals, but for the whole world as various nations, because there are individuals that are doomed from the womb, and there is no blood for them, because no blood on the cross was ever wasted. If God wanted to save a billion, the blood is for a billion. A billion and one is not going to make it. That one never had blood, and God will now make it impossible for them to ever come to him. I know you're almost wondering, like, man, that sounds like a totally different God. And yes, we can argue with him and sometimes say that. Your God doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. It sounds like God does love every individual and that if individuals go to hell, it's not because blood wasn't shed for them. It's not because God didn't love them and give them chances to be saved. It's because they refused to be saved and they didn't apply the blood to their lives. And and then on judgment day, it is because of their will that they're going to hell, not because of God's will. God's will wasn't for all of these lost ones to go to hell. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He wishes that none would perish, but all come to repentance. And, of course, then we go back and forth on these verses. But you have to be honest when you deal with these verses that move the needle towards their perspective. And so what I do, like a Wesleyan, 
who came out of Jacob Arminius' teaching, uh, John Wesley, he modified it more, so I relate more to a second or third generation of this understanding known as Wesleyanism. John Wesley and his understanding, we sit and listen to these scriptures and we say amen because we believe that God gets fed up with people too. But the reason isn't because of his choice to damn them, but because it was their choice to not let him in. And so because they refuse to be saved, now they are left in the darkness of their soul. And God doesn't owe them another thing. So often we think that God would owe them that time. Oh, God, don't you know that this next time you reach out to them, they, they would cry out to you and be healed. But God says, no, I have dealt with them up until this point. They have disregarded me. Now they will not get another chance even if it would work for them. That's why when we think about the thief on the cross, we ought not to then surmise from that that all of us are just going to live in sin as long as we want to and then wait for our deathbed confession. Because you making that decision now may be God's timing to say, I'm never taking you back ever. And there are stories about this, and I don't know if they're wives' tales told by preachers, but they are in our history of people crying out on their deathbed, oh, that I could feel conviction again. God, why is it I can't sense your presence here now? How I wish I could be saved now. Preachers used to tell stories like that, talk about filling the altar calls. Imagine telling a room full of people that, that there were those who have died saying, I have no sense of God's presence anymore, but I wish I could. And this was to these preachers an evidence that God had left them and abandoned them to their own sin because they had been so rebellious time and time again that now they waited till when it was convenient for them to get saved. And God said, it's not your convenience to when I save you. I save you when I want to save you. And the time that I wanted to save you has now passed. And you see, I believe that actually brings more of a fear of the Lord. Because I think Calvinism and fatalism actually just makes you lazy. Well, if God's going to save me, then he'll save me then. And, that, and then if you meet people who have come from those churches, that's how they talk. Well, if God's going to do it, he's going to do it. It must not be his timing yet. See, that doesn't really put the fear of God in you believing in fatalism because whatever will be, will be, you know? But when you understand it from the biblical perspective, it does put the fear of God in you. When you hear a message like the way I'm presenting it to you, it puts the fear of God in you. Why? Because you begin to understand that your continual rejection of God has a consequence. That if a person continually rejects the God of the Bible, there is a punishment that comes alongside of that. And so look at it in 2 Thessalonians, New Testament, chapter 2, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one, who we believe is the Antichrist, will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. So the devil's a liar and he's deceiving people. And by the way, all of these superhero movies, it's all building up towards people receiving an Antichrist who can do all of those tricks. They'll call it aliens. They'll call it technology. But they will fall down and worship Thanos. They will fall down and worship that Antichrist figure because their mind has been opened up to accept all of those things while they ridiculed us as Christians. So get ready for the false signs and wonders that will blow people's minds, okay? He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that the wickedness deceives those who are perishing. Now, some may say the devil's a liar. Amen. We, we, we talked about that before, that the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbelievers. We understand that Satan can deceive. Isn't that true? But now keep reading. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. These folks now, as we get to the end times and we see them heading towards judgment, towards the slaughter of Revelation, the battle of Armageddon, we are now not seeing people we ought to feel sorry for. We're seeing people receiving what they deserve. Did you feel sorry when the Nazis got defeated in World War II or you watch a movie like that? 
No, because they're getting what they deserve, right? They refused. They had all these times to surrender, and they didn't want to surrender. Now they're receiving what they deserve. This is how we're to look at it in the end times. This is not just individuals. I believe it can happen in individuals at any time, but this talks about a generation of people on the planet. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Now highlight verse 11, please. For this reason. What reason? The reason we just heard, because they refused to do the right thing. For this reason, God now sends them. Not the devil. Somebody say, not the devil. Come on, not the devil. God now sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. God now says, I'm going to throw off your thinker. I'm going to get in to how you make decisions and make it easy for you to make a bad one now. I'm going to lower the dial of your conscience. Because wasn't the conscience a gift from God to begin with? Who here is going to argue with God and say, no, God, I deserve to always have this much intelligence. I always deserve to have this much of a conscience. No, you don't. You don't deserve any of it. If God gave you 10% uh, you know, a deduction of your conscience, you're going to argue with him? Gave you a 10% deduction of your intelligence? <laughs> what are you going to say to him? When you had 100% of your conscience, when you had 100% of your uh, intelligence, you denied him. Now if he wants, he can turn it down as much as he wants. He could make you like a dumb animal, like the King Nebuchadnezzar that I just read about today in the book of Daniel that began to live among the cows eating grass for the glory of God. I just read that today. In the, he, he could lower it down, I'm telling you, until we bark like dogs. So he just says in the Bible, he's going to send them a delusion. He's going to click, click, click. He's just going to lower down their defenses, their common sense, their womanly perception, because women are very perceptive. Just lower it down and then go, now you'll believe anything. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. Now you see why this is a scary part of the Bible, going back to the portion with Jesus. Just from the beginning, so you can see it in context now. John chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, talking about God, has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Verse 41, enough about them. Let's go back to Jesus. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. You want to see one of the greatest evidences of Jesus in the Old Testament? Go to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. The same portion of Scripture that we've been reading where all of this judgment is happening, Isaiah is getting all of these revelations. It starts off with, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. And with the two they were flying and they were calling one to another holy 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 is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory and at the sound of their voices the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke guess who john the revelator says isaiah saw jesus go back to it john chapter 12 verse 41 Isaiah said this, these judgments are coming on Israel because he saw Jesus' glory. So Jesus, according to the book of John, is not merely a God or an angel. He is the very God that the prophets have seen and have spoken on behalf of. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Isaiah saw Jesus, God the Son, and then told us these things. Why? So that those of Jesus' day would be without excuse. 
He sent his messenger ahead of them. Don't you hear it in the passage? Lord, who's believed our message? They had almost a a thousand years to get ready from time of Isaiah. They had hundreds of years to study it and to recognize it and to know who Isaiah had seen was the very one standing in front of them, performing these signs, doing all of these things. Now do you see it's, it's not because Jesus doesn't love them. I mean, what more else could he have done? He goes ahead of them by hundreds of years and writes a prophecy about himself. Many of them in the book of Isaiah, the same place that's going to talk about the hardening coming if they keep doing the things that cause woe. He comes ahead of them. He meets one of their prophets. He then comes born of a virgin. No one knows that. that, that you, everybody knows you can't be born of a virgin. He then does the miracles that no one else has ever done. He then teaches them through the scriptures over and over and over again. And yet, as the passage begins, is how their story is going to end. They refused to believe. It was because of them that now they have judgment placed upon them. They're not going to get another chance. Others will. Others will. Even those crucifying Jesus will. The story about the man at the cross, a centurion soldier, will repent as he sees the earth shake and the sky turn to black at his crucifixion. There will be forgiveness all, all around and dealt out to so many different people moving forward. It's, it's not that Jesus doesn't love or doesn't forgive. There's going to be so much grace that is going to be poured out. But for these, for them, their final chapter has been written. Now they can't even turn. Now they can't see. Now they can't understand because they had crossed the line with Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see where that line is and to stay so far away from it that we never get close to it in Jesus' name. Amen. May we never try to see in our own manipulative efforts how close to hell we can get and still go to heaven. Let's see how close to heaven we can get and still be on earth. Amen? Let's not try to see how much sin we can get away with or whether or not we can wait till our deathbed to confess our sins. Let us always confess our sins. The moment of conviction... And to understand that the very conviction of the Lord is a blessing to our soul. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the times I feel convicted. Please don't take your spirit from me. Can you hear this now in the heart of David? It's against you and you only, Lord, that I have sinned. But take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Renew unto me a right heart, O God, a steadfast spirit that I might know your ways and teach them to others. That should be the heart of every Christian. Not trying to see how far we can go in our sin before our hearts get hardened and we get kicked out of the kingdom. No, we should remain soft in our hearts. And anything that comes in, let it be like poison to us. So that the moment it comes in, we sense that doesn't belong there. Red alert. Get out in Jesus' name. Like a pebble in your shoe. Something's not right in my step. Something's not right in my walk. I need to get this out in Jesus' name. And so that's why you can see the grace of God now in ways that they couldn't. They forfeited seeing a God of grace. Now they'll only know him as a God of judgment. And now Jesus is going to explain to them how that judgment will come upon them because obviously he just spoke some heavy words to them. They would not have been ignorant of those scriptures. They just would have thought it applied to somebody else. For that now to be applied to them, to be said to Jewish leaders at that time, not only are you wrong, not only are you lost, but you can't ever come back. You're done. You're out the kingdom. That's all they lived for. 
That's all that they wanted. They had not bowed their knee to the idols of Rome or of Greece and had suffered like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had been through oppression for hundreds of years waiting for the kingdom of God to come. And yet now they are told, you're not getting in ever. You're out. You're cut. They now need to understand, how is that going to happen? So did the disciples. Is lightning going to come down and strike them? Is fire going to devour them like it did in the time of Elijah? Is the earth going to split apart like it did during the time of Moses in the rebellion of Korah? How is now this judgment going to come? Keep going. Verse 42, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. Come on, say amen. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. So there's some there that are weak in faith, and yet they believe. And so uh, could these possibly be the ones that lead the Christian movement after they get over their fear. Because we know Peter is going to act like he's courageous, but then truly sin, the sin of cowardice. But Jesus will forgive that, right, and restore him. It seems like these leaders are going to be restored because, remember, John is writing after the fact. John already knows the story. John already knows how this ends. And more than likely, some are there among them now in the churches going, He's talking about me. I, I, I was one of them, man. I believed, but I was afraid. And so what does this show us? That there's great grace. There's, there, there's, there's not a moment that we as true Christians should ever doubt the grace of God. Those who are living in sin, sin should fear because they don't know when the grace runs out. But for those of us truly loving God, wanting to do the right thing, we should know that he'll be patient with us. Amen? Because as we read elsewhere in Isaiah, that the standard default Character of God is to always dwell with the contrite and the humble. Amen? And so they were afraid, and they didn't want to say anything, but now Jesus is going to explain how this is going to work. Verse 44, then Jesus cried out in a loud voice. Listen, he's crying out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. Isn't that what we've always heard from the beginning of John, that he comes from the Father, full of grace and truth? The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And they're not the same person, but they bear the same nature. Just like if you've seen my son, you've seen me in a lot of ways, and they, they are similar, the father and the son, because they both share the identity of God. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. So he's now going to speak to everyone that's believing. But then in verse 47, now he's going to say to those who don't believe, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, and notice believe and keep, go synonymously there. So faith without works is dead. If you truly believe, you keep God's commands. Amen? Someone who says, I believe in God but doesn't keep his commands is a liar. We're not saved by the keeping of the commands, but the result of belief is always the keeping of God's word. Amen? If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. Now, this is where you see I have a lot of scriptures coming after this because we don't want Jesus to contradict himself. He is a judge. But what he is saying now is I'm not judging this person in this context. And he says it right afterwards. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Because he just told them, you're out the kingdom, you can't even be saved. Is this now the fire falling, the earth splitting apart? He's saying, that's not why I've come. You're going to face that on another day. And there's all the scriptures where he says elsewhere that he's the judge. Amen? Let me just go to one here. Go to John 5.27. Just go to John 5.27. I don't have time to go through them all by God's grace. You have the notes there. They're on the app and online. John 5.27. The Father has given authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Does everybody see that the Son of Man is going to judge? In his Father's name. Okay, good. Just want to make sure that we're not making stuff up, okay? And just go to the Second Timothy 1, chapter 4. Here's where Paul says the same thing. We'll do half of them, amen? And if I keep feeling the Holy Spirit, we'll do all of them. Y'all okay for the ride? You guys are hanging around for a little bit? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead? Father and Son judging the living and the dead, amen? Amen. So now going back to that passage, so there's no contradiction there is a timeline, though. For if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. 
in this world. That's, that's what you could put right after that because this is how he clarifies it. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Can I hear an amen? I just want to make sure you see that context. He's not contradicting himself. He is not saying he's not going to judge. He's not saying he's not going to do those things. But what he's saying is in this world right now, I'm not judging you. That's not why I came, he said. He said, I came to save them. And, of course, that goes all throughout the book of John, that concept. Verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. And how many know Jesus' words aren't floating around all by themselves? He's going to be speaking those words. Go to Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. Or chapter 1, verse 4, rather. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Whenever God speaks, he sends his word. The word is Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4, please. Notice how the prophets would speak. The word of the Lord came to me, saying. Does everybody see that? The word of the Lord came to me, saying. Now, you have two options. How does the word of the Lord come to you, saying? Option A, like Sesame Street, A book came down called The Word of the Lord and then started talking to him. Or a person called The Word of the Lord came speaking to him, option B. Option A is the book came speaking. Option B is a person came speaking. Which one do you believe? Option B. Now go to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know he's called The Word of the Lord. Amen. So who's going to judge them on that day? His words, which is another way of saying, I will judge you with my words on that day. There is a judge, verse 48, for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken, will condemn them at the last day. Verse 49, for I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that has been spoken, all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, So whatever I say is just and what the Father has told me to say. I like that last part. So, please, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Amen? So if people have not believed, is that God's fault or is that their fault? That's their fault. If after not believing for a long period of time, God removes his grace from them so that they don't have another chance to be saved. Is that God's fault or their fault? Still their fault. See, that judgment would never have come if they did not reject God so often. Hebrews 10, 38, please, in closing, uh, Lawrence, would you come, please? This puts the fear of God in me, but it also comforts me to know that if I have heard these words and I have put my faith in Christ, then I have nothing to be afraid of. Amen? Come on, somebody, get it today. There is a warning in there, and that should be taken serious. But there's also an encouragement in there to know that if I believe the words of Jesus and I take them serious, then I am saved. Even if I make mistakes, Even if sometimes I don't do the right thing, even if like those Jews of that time, I act cowardly and I need another chance to act in courage, it's not over for me yet. The only ones he does that to are those who stiff-necked, get stiff-necked, say, I won't bow down. I'm, I'm going to be stiff-necked. I won't lower myself to you and refuse time and time and time again. Those are the ones who should take warning today. Those are the ones who are playing with God's grace, treating it like it's not special, like they can just keep on sinning and being forgiven, and hey, if I don't get it all right, man, I'll get it right on my deathbed, you know, when I'm an old person. Those are the ones who should take fear and warning today. Scripture says, Hebrews 10, 38, but my righteous one will live by faith. My righteous one. The one right before God. How many righteous ones do I have here today in the house of God? Amen. My righteous one will live by faith. 
I can just see Jesus nudging the angels. There's one of my righteous ones right there. They live by faith. Look at that one right there, living by faith. Why? Because God says, I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. And the one who turns their back on him, he takes no pleasure in them. So the author teaches us here, don't be like or belong to those who shrink back. It's that simple. And they are destroyed. Don't be like them, but be like those who have faith and are saved. Amen? It's your choice today. It's my choice. I'm not making it hard today for Jesus to come into my heart. I'm opening the combination for him. Come right in, Jesus. The, the, the lockbox of my heart is open. I don't need you fiddling around with it anymore. I'm just opening up to you. I believe. I thank God, if you're following in that example, I thank God that he's patient with others, that their hearts are still closed, and he's working on them, and he's doing something special in their hearts so that their heart will be open. And maybe some of you here that are unbelievers need that, and I pray you have grace and time to receive that. But no one's promised tomorrow, so you better, you better think about the, the game you're playing there. But for me, and I believe for many of us here, man, my heart's just open. I believe Jesus. I may not always understand how this works out. I may not always see you in every situation, but I know that you're there. I know that you haven't left me or forsaken me. I know that you have me by your side. I'm the apple in your eye today, God. I'm in your hands. Nobody can take me out. Hallelujah. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I'm more than a conqueror. Neither life nor death nor angels or demons nor the present or the past or the things of the future can separate me from the love of God. That's what I believe today. And I'm going to trust that. I'm going to trust that and walk in faith. Amen? If you're going to walk in faith today, can you stand up and give it up for Jesus?